Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Kelly Petillo. Kelly is the program coordinator for Middle East and North Africa at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She recently authored a study for ECFR titled From Aid to Inclusion, A Better Way to Help Syrian Refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. You can find it on the ECFR website, that's ecfr.eu, and it's the focus of our conversation today. Every week we feature experts like Kelly. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Kelly, welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, let's begin by just reminding our listeners of the enormous commitment that three countries, Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon, have undertaken in regards to the Syrian refugee crisis. Roughly 5.4 million people have fled that brutal civil war. And by far, the largest number are in those three countries, Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon. Can you break down the numbers for us and talk a little bit about the generosity these countries have shown? So according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, Turkey hosts 3.5 million Syrian refugees. Jordan hosts 660,000 Syrian refugees and Lebanon 814 thousand um, and a bit more than that. Um, but it is worth noting that these uh, figures uh, reflect refugees registered under UNHCR, uh, but real numbers are likely to be much higher, especially in Lebanon, uh, where uh, uh, UNHCR registrations were stopped by the government in 2015. So at the same time, we also have another dynamic. Um, so in public statements, host countries tend to exaggerate the numbers a little bit. Uh, this is uh, for political reasons. Uh, it is very much about creating urgency, both with the international donor community, but also with public audiences to create this sense of urgency that the numbers are overwhelming. So international support needs to continue and uh, the situation is dramatic. Uh, so this, uh, with, with local audiences, this is very much used on a, um, to campaign for ahead of elections, as we're seeing in Turkey. So Turkey has also, for example, uh, claimed that they hold 6 million uh, Syrian refugees in the country, compared, I remind, to the 3.5 million uh, that I mentioned that are registered under UNHCR. They've also claimed that about 550,000 Syrians returned to Syria, even though we know that UNHCR figure is much lower than that. And so we see, for example, Lebanon has talked about 2 million, uh, Jordan, 1.3 million, uh, and so on. As I mentioned, with Lebanon, the situation is a bit more complicated, but we know that the Norwegian Refugee Council talks about 1.5 million Syrian refugees in the country. This is uh, 20% of the Lebanese population of 6 million. So it's quite significant. Uh, to, um, Lebanon and Jordan are the two countries that host the biggest population of refugees per capita in the world. Uh, and Turkey has taken at a global level the highest number of refugees in the world. So in terms of generosity, we should mention that after the initial 
uh, expression of solidarities from these countries, where in this initial phase following the outbreak of the war in 2011, there was a general recognition across the political spectrum in these countries that Syrians were subject to a brutal regime and they needed to be hosted and offered a safe haven. On the other hand, um, Syrian refugees have never been fully recognized as refugees, uh, and this is quite important from a legal perspective. So Jordan and Lebanon uh, never signed on to the 1951 refugee conventions. Um, we know that Turkey has signed on, but they never fully really, it's because they never consider Syrian refugees as, as uh, recognizing them as refugees, they basically do not really use that as a framework. So we, we see that in uh, rhetoric and public statements, uh, Syrian refugees are described as guests, as the displaced, um, and uh, their presence is always made up to be temporary. There was that initial support for refugees in the early days of the war, but that's changed, hasn't it, Kelly? So in, after the initial burst of solidarity that I mentioned, uh, we, we see that uh, things have started to shift quite a lot. So in Lebanon, that started quite early. As I mentioned, uh, this resulted in 2015 with the, uh, the ending of the UNHCR registrations. Uh, in Turkey, this happened uh, a bit later. I imagine um, uh, because uh, of uh, the framework that existed in terms of bilateral uh, relationship with the EU, we had the, the EU-Turkey statement in 2016. So that delayed things a little bit because Turkey had some degree of steady support from Europe. But uh, from 2018 and 19, things started changing. Uh, the opposition parties uh, secured a victory in local elections, and we know that municipalities are quite important in the management of Syrian refugees in Turkey. So after this shift, uh, we've seen that uh, public opinion has been uh, changing because opposition parties to uh, Erdogan are a bit more hostile to the presence of Syrian refugees. And so we've seen that these changes have started to materialize also in Turkey. Um, surveys show us that now attitudes have significantly turned uh, quite negative towards them. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it, Kelly, that, uh, as you say, um, there is a bit of a numbers game going on. But but these countries uh, are all in themselves economically stressed. And, and you can see why, as the war continues, these kinds of issues, these resentments would start to, to flare up and, and become uh, more serious, particularly, as you mentioned, with Turkey and, and heading into an election. Absolutely. And we should not forget that in the last uh, few years, there have been quite significant shifts. Um, uh, we always talk about uh, these countries being on the brink. First of all, the economies of these countries are highly dependent on remittances um, and uh, foreign support. And uh, we also had, as I mentioned, significant shifts happening in the past uh, few years. Uh, Lebanon, of course, has been undergoing a massive economic uh, and political crisis. Turkey also, we've seen uh, it's it's undergoing also a tight uh, economic situation. Things have gotten worse. Jordan is experiencing 50% youth unemployment, and uh, unemployment in general is quite high. Uh, the, economy, the economy has been very much in a downward spiral. We also have had the impact of COVID-19 that's added itself to these grievances and has made the situation worse for many people. 
Uh, and so we've had basically a series of overlapping crises, really. Uh, we People talk about uh, crisis within crisis. And so they all compound each other and overlap in uh, terrible ways. Mm. And the pressure, the pressure is on those refugees. Um, added to that, the Ukraine war has, has created issues of, of food insecurity. Uh, between the locals and the refugees, what kind of tensions are you are you seeing on the ground? Yes, the war in Ukraine had a huge impact and it worsened uh, the existing trends that I mentioned. Um, so before the war in Ukraine, it, there was there were already issues uh, with Syrian refugees' ability to access resources because of the strain that um, exists in uh, many of the local communities. In Jordan, you have a, a big water problem, as I mentioned, a huge unemployment, um, and uh, the countries are under strain the more the population increases. So over the years, as the presence of Syrian refugees continued to increase, uh, local communities were more and more under strain. And this ties up also with the mismanagement that we've seen in some countries, for example, Lebanon, where uh, due to corruption, um, the is extremely widespread. You have a situation where there is very poor, uh, first of all, care. Uh, there was a little bit of ambiguity by the government, kind of a refusal to really address the situation in the first place. But at the same time, because of the corruption and the overall mismanagement of resources, of the uh, politics, of uh, taking into account the grievances that people are facing, there has always been a little, uh, there has been more and more of a neglect and uh, the situation over 12 years worsened more and more uh, because it's never been fully addressed. Um, but the war in Ukraine itself, before, as I mentioned, uh, it was about ability, the ability of Syrian refugees to access resources, but the war in Ukraine has, has created problem of availability as well. For example, of course, wheat, uh, but, and this not only affected Syrians, but also locals. So before the invasion already, Turkey and Lebanon, for example, were among the main recipients of Ukrainian wheat, and they were among the three countries uh, that were most affected by the increase of the rate of food prices between February and March 2022. Uh, and in Turkey, uh, we, ha we have seen in 2022 a massive spike in inflation. Uh, we're talking about 99% at some point. October, we are talking about 85%. Uh, the Lebanese pound uh, has lost basically almost all of its value by now. Uh, but one of Ukraine also contributed to that. Uh, we uh, I've seen this statistic by the World Bank that talks about Lebanon being uh, basically only second to Zimbabwe as the country uh, that was worst affected by the rise of food prices. Uh, Jordan also was affected, although to a lesser extent, it was less dependent by uh, Russian Ukraine. But uh, it also we've seen that the government increased its wheat reserves after the invasion. So these effects of the war in Ukraine really ended up mixing in a, in very uh, terrible ways with how these countries were already uh, affected. Uh, so uh, we're talking about uh, the, I've seen this news um, as I was researching the issue. Uh, that in Lebanon, the Ukraine war came after 85% of the country's grain reserves were lost during the Beirut blast of 4th August 2020. So we see this overlap, in, uh, which is really grim and shocking. 
And uh, these effects are incredibly affecting um, Syrian refugees, first of all, because their conditions were already extremely poor. But of course, uh, um, it affects local people as well and their capacity uh, to cater for Syrian refugees. And it makes them more vulnerable to hostile rhetoric by policymakers uh, in the country and officials. Mm. So there has been a massive negative impact. We should not really um, assume that everybody is vulnerable to these rhetorics, uh, but we also see that the efforts uh, to promote uh, hatred towards Syrian refugees are some working to some extent, especially in Turkey, um, where we've seen that overall attitudes were overall positive towards Syrian refugees. Uh, this is really changing now in the lead up to elections uh, next month. And so Syrian refugees have been uh, at the forefront of uh, so many uh, episodes of hatred, hostile uh, political campaigning, even in situations where clearly they do not um, have anything to do with the problem. We've, um, in, you know, last November when we had a bombing in Istanbul occurred, Syrian refugees were blamed and hashtag against Syrian refugees were trending. Even now with the earthquake, which also affected many cities that are that have a high Syrian refugee population, we've seen that Syrian refugees are being blamed for a natural disaster, really. Mm. So it's pretty endemic uh, in some cases. But again, I also wanted to reflect the new ones, and I wanted to also acknowledge that not everybody in these countries uh, fully subscribes to this. Yeah, well, it, it is interesting that that as the situation in these countries deteriorates and with these external factors such as the uh, the war in Ukraine, you can see those tensions just starting to build. But it is also very dangerous, isn't it? These these attacks that are basically political in nature that you create the the other, and then you accuse them of various things for which they are not responsible. But let me ask you this, Kelly: the European strategy over the past eleven years could be described really as containment that is pouring a lot of money into the host countries to keep refugees in place, to keep them effectively out of Europe. How much money and and has this strategy really worked? Yeah, um, so Europeans have contributed more than 10 billion US dollars to supporting Syrian refugees in uh, regional host countries since 2011. There is also a specific European member states like Germany who not only took huge amounts of Syrian refugees into the country and showed great generosity, uh, Sweden as well, uh, but Germany itself is also the second largest donor after the US to the so-called uh, Syrian Refugee Res Regional Resilience Plan, also known as the 3RP, which is uh, the key mechanism uh, to coordinate the international response to the Syria refugee crisis in the region. And uh, the EU, just to give you an idea, uh, has donated since 2015 around 1.8 billion US dollars. So Germany stands second before the EU. So it is quite a huge commitment that these countries, uh, that the EU has, has put in this. And uh, I think in general, this has been essential in uh, uh, not making the conditions for Syrian refugees in these countries, even worse than they would be now. It's hard to imagine they, they could be worse, but I think it's very important to acknowledge that they could be uh, because uh, the EU and its member state have, and the US have put incredible amounts of resources that they've invested hugely 
on support both inside Syria, but also in regional host countries. Of course, part of this is politically motivated. There is very much, and I know we will go into this later, but uh, it is very much about containing, as you mentioned. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and my guest, Kelly Patillo, from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Kelly, you told us about the significant amounts of funding that have gone into supporting refugees, but is it a strategy that's working? In terms of whether this worked, I, I think the, there is no short answer to this. I think it's very nuanced, uh, but uh, I think to a certain extent, as I mentioned, it helped mitigating some of the problems. But the issue that I see is that even as the war in Syria continued, and now we are at year 12, the bulk of the support has remained of very short-term, narrow nature. We're talking about uh, support like food assistance, access to basic services, which uh, has also been insufficient. Many times the, the, the gap in financing has not been uh, filled. And meanwhile, uh, rhetorically, uh, Europeans keep on stressing, and fairly so, they want Syrian refugees to return home only when returns can be voluntary, safe, and dignified. Mm -hmm. um, this is, however, really unattainable right now. You know, there is there is all sorts of issues. Uh, Syrians, first of all, lack access to reliable information of what is going on. When we talk about returns, it's very much is is not is not a given where they would return. They also don't have a full picture of what happens to those who returned. We know that also over the years they have suffered massive poverty. They also require mental health support and rehabilitation from trauma that they have not accessed. There are gaps in terms of access to livelihood, education, no skills, knowledge development, all sorts of things. But most importantly, I think Syrian refugees have no access to key documentation that helps them be self-reliant. You have, on the one hand, this long-term hard to achieve goal uh, of uh, securing voluntary, safe and dignified returns. But on the other hand, uh, support has been very much day-to-day -day humanitarian. I know the Europeans are aware of this to a certain extent, and I know there are extreme challenges to achieve support uh, that is more long-term, that is more uh, based on rights and uh, um, legal security and overall security. Uh, mm. But um, it, it is just not a conversation that I don't see that this conversation is being had right now in how this support is managed. And, and you mentioned, Kelly, that, that Germany and, and, and Sweden, countries that have really shown, well, we could say exemplary behavior. Uh, but then there are other countries, you know, like Denmark, that have argued for some time that Syria is a safe country to return refugees to. But you know, I know, and, and certainly those Syrian refugees who are being pressured to leave places like Denmark, they know it's not safe for them to go back. And you make an interesting point that knowing they know it's not safe, but they don't know what it would be like for them when they do go back. So there's that as well, that uncertainty. Yes, exactly. Uh, you're absolutely correct. There is very little monitoring currently taking place to what happens to Syrian refugees who do try to return which are very few, by the way, and I think it's important to stress that as well. But um, 
for the few cases that has been documented by human rights groups like Human Rights Watch, we know that uh, um, there have been cases of arrests, detentions, and, and forced disappearances. Overall, the regime tends to consider most of the refugees who fled the country as uh, dissidents, regardless of their political affiliation, really. So there is a, a degree of danger. We, uh, there is, of course, the danger of uh, uh, forced conscriptions uh, by uh, male Syrians. Um, and so there is uh, all sorts of uncertainties to what happens to them when they return. And uh, the regime does not make monitoring and sort of information gathering easy. And so you have this ambiguity there. So there are issues when we talk about the voluntary aspect of Syrian returns, to which extent you can consider the voluntary component being fulfilled, given that information is uh, very, there is, a, there is a very big gap in information. And Syria itself, we know, is not safe to return to now. Uh, the country is, uh, is an has an economy that uh, depends on uh, captagon trade now. Uh, there is widespread poverty, massive instability, territorial fragmentation. Assad controls the bulk of the country, but in the north of Syria, we have the presence of Turkish army, we have the Kurds, we have other armed groups, the opposition, of course, and uh, even groups uh, that are labeled as terrorists by the UN. So there is uh, all sorts of issues that come with how returns take place, where do they take place. Um, Denmark has spoken about deeming uh, initially in 2018, two areas in Syria, Damascus and, Damascus and the area around Damascus, safe. But now they've added two more areas, Tartus and Latakia. And uh, the, when they talk about deeming them as safe and revoking residence permits for some Syrian refugees that they host, we, they still are not able to actually return Syrian refugees. So it is very much a decision fueled by domestic politics, I would say, more than actual possibility to return Syrians, because again, Copenhagen doesn't have any official diplomatic relationships with the regime. They show that um, the revocations that, they have taken, that have taken place, you're able to legally appeal to those. So... At the same time, the effect that this actually has is leaving uh, Syrians in, in a bit of a state of a limbo. So, Kelly, the uh, Danish authorities revoke the residency permits. What happens then to these refugees when these revocations take place? Many of the Syrians who get their permission, uh, the residency permit revoked, are put in detention centers. Sometimes these are former prisons. And so you uh, restrict massively their ability to move around, seek employment. It's the punitive nature of, of you know, I mentioned Denmark in particular. But even so, there is really a foot, uh, a political climate in Europe and, and here in the UK that is drifting ever further to the hard right. And that seeks to turn the victims of war and deprivation into, if not exactly the villains, then at the very least a group of people we should not have much sympathy for. In political circles, what sort of appetite remains for compassionate solutions to the refugee crisis? Or are we in a place where politically it's better to turn these refugees, particularly the Syrian refugees, into scapegoats to dump a lot of other ills 
as has happened in Turkey, for example, heading into an election, on onto the refugees. I mean, where are we heading in 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 Europe and 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 here in the UK? Unfortunately, I think my answer is going to be very negative. Uh, first of all, the, the first thing I would say is that these trends tend to really fuel each other. When I was uh, um, traveling to the region, um, as I was writing my paper for ECFR, I spoke to a few people in Turkey and Lebanon, and they said that when you see decisions like the Danish, uh, the Denmark decision, or you see pushbacks by Greece, etc., uh, even though these have uh, very uh, domestic uh, motives, uh, for example, around uh, security, uh, if you want to call it that. Or, uh, you know, as I mentioned in Denmark, there is a, there has been, a, a, and in other countries like the UK, Italy, etc., heightened nationalisms, political uh, right-wing political currents. Uh, these have a massive impact on. Uh, um, scapegoating in the region as well. And they really help legitimize these narratives for host countries. Paradoxically, what ends up happening is that if Syrians in the region feel pressured to return, they will unlikely make the return to Syria at this point. Every survey that exists, including UN surveys, say the Syrians are not ready. They overall acknowledge that the situation is not yet ripe for returns. So what happens and what we're seeing, what we have seen already is that Syrians go the other way towards Europe. So we've seen that arrivals have doubled in the past couple of years. And so you end up actually achieving the opposite of what political parties in Europe um, want to avoid, basically. You have uh, this paradoxic situation on the one hand. And yes, as you mentioned, the conversation right now is extremely grim. It's very much around, let's help them where they are now. There is very little appetite or possibility for what we call durable solutions, which means not only repatriation, but resettlement and uh, integration. Uh, integration is very problematic for regional host countries because uh, there are demographic and religious concerns, for example, in Lebanon, the protracted presence of uh, a majority Sunni Syrian refugees could tip the uh, political balance that's based on religious sectarianism. In Turkey, there are massive demographic concerns, given the high degree of the Arab population that Syrian refugees can uh, bring. Uh, everybody talks a lot about the births of Syrian children. Uh, so you see these narratives taking place, even in Jordan, where um, the narrative is uh, normally quite friendly, and there are strong ties also before the war, you see that people increasingly say Syrians have put a strain on our uh, water system, they, they get uh, better English classes than we do because they get UN support, etc. Uh, so you see that the gestures and the rhetoric that European domestic politics are basically um, implementing are actually uh, fueling trends also in the region. Mm. You know, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting, Kelly, the point you make that there is a, a, a grim resonance that, that that's actually reinforcing the, the crisis. But your paper does have some recommendations, several recommendations. I'm just wondering, you know, let us end on a more positive note, perhaps. Briefly, can we just walk through some of the solutions that, that you're proposing to this very grim situation? Absolutely. I mean, the main point for me is that 
despite Europeans, and fairly so, focus on the war in Ukraine, their attention should also not go away from Syrian refugees. The reality is that Syrian refugees will unlikely return home anytime soon. And if they do, they will not all return at the same time. We know, for example, in the UN surveys that are carried out to see the intentions of Syrian refugees, there is no suggestion of a trend towards mass returns. And uh, actually, Assad himself does not want all Syrians to return together. There are also, of course, the limitations that are spoken about. But the reality is that now the situation in Syria is even worse as a result of the earthquakes uh, as well. And so it will take quite a long time to return Syrian refugees. And realistically, the scope for resettlement at the same time in Europe is, uh, or actually uh, scope for resettlement in general, not only Europe, but also elsewhere remains quite limited. So the conclusion I reach in the paper is that the situation, realistically speaking, and, and I know this is not ideal, needs to be managed in regional host countries. The good news, at least if you can call it that, is that everyone, so Syrian people, host countries and the international community agree that return to Syria is the main long-term solution to the Syrian refugee crisis. So I think this is the point of departure, really. But there needs to be more attention dedicated to what needs to happen before these returns can occur, given that there is no political solution in sight in Syria. So politically, for me, for uh, when it comes to the EU and its member states, this is about reiterating yet again and maintaining the position that these their returns should be voluntary, safe and dignified. This is a quite an important point because given that we've seen movements also uh, by the UN about uh, uh, towards the areas-based returns. So I think it's quite important uh, that the EU and its member states reiterate this position especially when it comes to the question of voluntary returns. As I mentioned, uh, Syrian refugees stated that they are unwilling to return in the near future. And the number of those who wish to return one day, as we've seen from UN surveys, decreases year by year. So at the same time, Europe's leverage, I think, will decrease more and more as funding levels decrease, as attention and funding gets shifted towards Ukraine and other crises. But for now, I think they still feature among the top donors to the Syrian response. So there's still uh, something that they can do to secure what in the paper I call inclusion rather than integration. Because uh, I've seen um, during my research that uh, the word uh, inclusion is uh, better accepted when it comes to having that political conversation with those countries. Yes, and your paper makes the point, Kelly, that uh, because... Syrians are not going to be able to return in big numbers to their communities for a long time yet, that it is time for the aid donors to consider longer-term kinds of solutions, that is education, that is support, that is training, so that when they finally do go back, they can fit in and proceed with their lives in somewhat a much more normal situation. So kind of a, a retooling there of how Europe looks at the aid it's providing and, as you say, suggest durable, longer-term solutions. And so in my paper, I argue that this year's Brussels conference, which is happening in June, should focus on examining the feasibility of the full array of uh, what we call durable solutions. So not only repatriation, but also resettlement and uh, integration or inclusion. 
especially in light of the Turkey conference that took place in March, where we um, where there was a, a chance to focus a lot on early recovery inside Syria, humanitarian assistance. I think that in June, there is a bit more space than usual to talk about long-term support. Well, Kelly, um, it's a huge, huge challenge, and, and your paper... I know will contribute to towards the the conversation, the discussions moving forward. Um, and I thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Kelly Patillo. Kelly is the program coordinator for Middle East and North Africa at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She recently authored a study for ECFR titled From Aid to Inclusion, a better way to help Syrian refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. You can find it on the ECFR website. That's uh, ecfr.eu. And I highly recommend you go look for it. Since we launched our podcast three years ago, it's been listened to more than 130,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of Middle East and North Africa analysts and commentators, contributors like Kelly. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our regular listeners will have noticed that we've moved the podcast to midweek and we'll be putting it out on Wednesdays from now on. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.